You're listening to 88.1 FM WESU Middletown, all the way to the left of your dial. This is episode 5 of season 9 for Anarchy on Air, your source for anarchist thought, culture, and politics. The views expressed on this program are the views of the individual broadcasters and by no means reflect the views of Wesleyan University or the WESU management. Anarchy on Air is produced by a majority POC working group that functions on a consensus basis. The group operates under a non-hierarchical model, and we are continuously developing our own processes for making decisions and the production of this bi-weekly show. The group's eye is always towards eliminating forces of hierarchy and coercion. Currently, the working group consists of five members with unique backgrounds and political perspectives who collaboratively write, record, and broadcast each episode. Ultimately, our politics aren't about a distant, idyllic future, but about recreating the world around us right now. On this segment of Anarchy on Air, we're focusing on abortions. My name is Jeannie, and I'd like to shake things up today. And instead of our normal interview slash panel discussion, I'd like to bring you a long-form piece similar to the ones you probably have heard on NPR, but with none of the budget and significantly less thorough research. First, I'd like to take you pre-Roe v. Wade and how a group of women, later known as the Jane Collective in Hyde Park, Chicago, secretly performed over 11,000 abortions over a span of about five years, from 1969 to 1973. The women hadn't been to medical school, but their skills were attested by a doctor who risked his license doing post-operative checkups on the clients. I'm going to follow this up with an interview with Amelia Benau, who created the hashtag ShoutYourAbortion that jump-started an entire movement, a nonprofit organization, and most recently, a book containing 45 other stories of people's abortions. Stay tuned after our PSA and commercial break for some quick action news around the globe by comrades Cameron, Danny, and Marshall. In recent weeks, the resistance movement against mass detention in the United States has been gaining energy. Mass protests and demonstrations have taken place in Texas, Florida, Arizona, Maryland, Illinois, and Rhode Island. Over 150 migrants in U.S. detention centers went on hunger strikes at the end of March. Comrades in the United States and Canada have vandalized ICE agents' cars and homes. With wall construction continuing and the Department of Homeland Security pushing for fewer restrictions on their power, more resistance is likely to follow. On Friday, March 29th, an unexpected fire burned down the main office of the Highlander Research and Education Center, a civil rights organizing center outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, with historical ties to figures such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks. Organizers at the center issued a statement last Tuesday saying that a white supremacist symbol had been spray-painted onto the parking lot connected to the building. They wrote, While we do not know the names of the culprits, we know that the white power movement has been increasing and consolidating power across the South, across the nation, and globally. The symbol was later determined to be connected to the neo-Nazi group Traditional Workers Party, who plan on holding a conference in Tennessee this May. The potential arson and act of terror coincides with a general surge in white supremacist attacks, particularly the recent vandalization of a memorial to slaves and black workers at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Turning to Italy in Turin, anarchists are suspected of sending an explosive package to Mayor Chiara Appendino and bullets to Prefect Claudio Palomba. Police think the anarchists are reacting to the clearing of a former nursery school housing anarchists from all over Europe earlier this year. The new city police chief, Giuseppe De Matisse, said these actions recall the dark days of 1970s militant actions and that the degeneration of protest in the last few days makes us think of times we thought we had left behind. As a result, city authorities are now contemplating evictions of anarchists from a former school they recently occupied. 
Also in Italy, five Greek anarchists who had protested the Milan Expo were just acquitted Thursday of causing devastation during a protest against the Milan Expo on its inaugural day on May 1, 2015. A Milan court upheld their lawyer's appeal and a plea from the prosecutor based on the fact that the five had already been convicted of the same crimes in Greece. And now, turning to Greece, last week a group of about 50 masked individuals ambushed eight Hellenic Coast Guard officers in the central Athens district of Exarchaea, which has long served as a base for anti-establishment groups. This was in response to a cannabis-related drug raid on a house in Exarchaea. Their assailants wore black overalls, hoods, and helmets, and were armed with clubs and knives, while some brandished pistols and assault rifles. Two were injured. According to some witness reports, the attackers were under the impression that the house was being cleared of squatters. On April 5th, nine prisoners at two Wisconsin prisons started a hunger strike in order to end indefinite solitary confinement. They had a list of demands, citing the newly elected governor's campaign promises. This strike took place on Madison Action Day, a day dedicated to lobbying for prison reform. These organizers collaborated with Milwaukee Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee to create a phone zap demanding the well-being of people in solitary confinement. And again, listeners, that was Action News. We're back on Anarchy on Air. You're listening to 88.1 WESU. I am your host, Jeannie, and today we are talking abortion. I just really quickly want to give my citations up top. First and foremost, a big thank you to the omnipresent Wikipedia, and specifically the article on the Jane Collective. Number two, New York Times opinion piece by Kate Manning. Number three, timeline essay by Laura Smith. Number four, Chicago Tribune article by Ron Grossman. And number five, an interview with um, Heather Booth by Meredith Stern for Just Seeds. And lastly, an incredible piece by Lizzie Presser for the California Sunday Magazine. All of the information in this show came from their very informative articles. Please check them out if you have any more questions. And I also want to say that given the time period of the Jane Collective, I am going to be using the language that they utilized, which is directed towards cisgendered women. And in instances where I can speak about the future of abortion, I will use non-gendered language where appropriate. All right. In 1965, eight years before Roe v. Wade was decided in the United States Supreme Court, Heather Booth, a University of Chicago student, found out that a family friend was pregnant, suicidal, and desperate for an abortion. And in Heather's own words, she says, I've never faced the issue of abortion myself. And I tried to find a doctor through um, the Medical Committee of Human Rights which was the medical arm of the civil rights movement. And through that, I found Dr. T.R.M. Howard. He was an extraordinary man. And though I hadn't known it at the time, he had been a freedom fighter in Mississippi. And the only reason why he came to Chicago was because he was on the KKK's death list. He performed the abortion for my family friend, and it was successful. I didn't think about it again until like um, about a month later when someone else called me and I called Dr. Howard again and he provided another successful procedure and then again a month later someone else had called me and it was then I realized that this really was a problem that maybe a lot of women had and word spread that Booth was able to help women obtain safe abortions, and she soon began receiving calls from other women. Operating under the pseudonym Jane, Booth began taking such phone calls at her college dormitory, referring more clients to Howard, who performed the abortions for about $500. In our current 2019 Today's Money, that's about $3,000. $443.81. By 1969, she had enlisted a group of women who formed the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation. They advertised in student and underground newspapers, Pregnant? Need help? Call Jane. 
There was no Jane, though. Not literally, anyway. And yet, at the same time, Jane was anybody. And as Laura Kaplan said, one of a former Jane Collective members, it was an every woman name used for everyone who once formed an underground network that provided clandestine abortion services. By 1970, Jane was referring two dozen women a week to willing doctors, and there were only a few of them. Callers left a message on the answering machine, call back Jane, and they would collect the information and pass it on to, quote, Big Jane, who would then supply an address to the, quote, front, unquote, where patients would receive counseling. Eventually, they'd be taken to a different address. Sometimes um, they would be blindfolded and driven. Sometimes they would be walked. But this other, this different address, this place was a member's home or a motel room where a doctor would induce miscarriage or perform a surgical abortion. Patients were sometimes blindfolded so that they couldn't help identify who helped them and where they had gone. Each person was set home with antibiotics and instructions for follow-up care. So... Jenny, one of the members, eventually began demanding to be in the room with the patients while the procedure was performed to ensure that the women were treated well. And this is because she was highly, highly critical of how her health was managed by men. A quick backstory on her. So she already had a child and later she was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma while concurrently diagnosed, or not diagnosed, she found out that she was also pregnant. Knowing that she had to undergo radiation treatment and that there was a high chance that um, her baby would either miscarry or have significant, significant hardships, um, she wanted to have an abortion. And no one at the hospital would allow her to do so. She asked everyone possible. And it wasn't until she convinced two separate psychiatrists that she was going to kill herself unless if she had an abortion. Until It wasn't until then that they relented. And back to the Jane Collective. Soon, it was not only college students who called. There were so many patients who were already mothers, poor, some of them abused. In the Janes, they all took careful notes on each caller, and they held weekly meetings to discuss safety. And also, because they recognized that the cost of $500 back then to $1,000 was way too high, they also fundraised to help cover the costs for procedures for those who could not afford it. And then the year after, the group discovered that one of the abortionists was not, as he had claimed previously, a doctor. And this actually created significant emotional duress for the members of the collective. And some of them, most, uh, over half of them, insisted that a the abortionist um, with fake credentials made them just like the back alleys, the ones who used coat hangers, the one who sent dozens of hundreds of thousands of women to the hospital because of hysterectomies or other very complicated and difficult hardships that happened afterwards. And up to half of the group members left after learning the abortionist was not an actual doctor. But there was, uh, in this, I guess, tragedy was one silver lining. Since they realized that this man was performing over 20 abortions a day, and yet he was more skilled than the doctors who performed only a few abortions a year, the women realized that if he can do it, then we can do it too. And then members of the Jane Collective took over performing the abortions, which enabled them to drop the price from $500 to $100. However, 
they accepted whatever the client was able to pay, even if that was nothing. The Jane Collective learned how to perform pap smears and found a laboratory to read the results for $4. The women learned several abortion methods, such as the cannula method for early-stage abortions, the supercoil method later used in late-stage abortions, which caused women to miscarry, but most widely was the DNC the dilation and cuterage method. The DNC method involved opening the cervix and insertion of a curette that was used to scrape the walls of a uterus to extract the fetus and placenta. And if you're like me right now, you're probably thinking to yourself that this is wildly unsafe and you're not wrong. This isn't safe in comparison to going to go see a doctor and getting a medically trained doctor to perform a um, a reproductive surgery on you. And none of us at this radio station, at the show, are ever going to promote this as a way, um, this or any other procedure like this. But... And there's a caveat, but as for safety for the Jane Collective and as for the results, one obstetrician who provided the follow-up visits for the collective's patients stated that their safety rate was comparable to legally operating clinics in New York at the time. That doctor, a gynecologist who had trained at the Cook Country Hospital, where poor women often wound up being operated on by back alley abortionists. He contrasted that with women's women whose abortions were performed by Jane's members. From my examinations, these women were not maltreated and had no ill effects. He told uh, Kaplan, who wrote a who was part of the collective and wrote a book on this. Their periods had returned, and they were in good health, and they had no complaints. All that is to say that one does not need to be a doctor. You only need good training to do an abortion. When the prices fell, Jane started getting more calls from more poor and black women. Abortion for black women was doubly fraught. They were not only burdened by society's attitudes towards abortion, but also by the criticism of black nationalists who identified abortion with genocide. Within those circles, any woman seeking an abortion was considered a traitor to her race. The Jane members were almost exclusively white, middle-class women. When a black woman named Lois came for an abortion, she reprimanded them. You guys are the white angels that are going to save everybody, and where are the black women at? Lois decided eventually to join Jane to help counsel black patients. The women's movements wasn't speaking to the black women because, as Lois puts it, we were trying to, one, deal with being black women, and two, deal with prejudice, three, deal with the structure, being single parents, and staying alive. That was our struggle. But her friends cautioned her about taking part in this illegal group, saying, Those white women would get out of it, but not you. You could go to jail. It was rumored that the police intentionally turned a blind eye towards the collective's illegal activities, possibly because of unwanted pregnancies that also occurred in their families. Some of their clients were from such families, or even policewomen themselves. One of the women who was trained to perform abortions noted, Neither the police nor the mafia had previously bothered us because they knew we were clean, we were really good, and made little money to interest them. P.B. Bart noted that unlike the other illegal abortionists, Jane did not leave bleeding bodies in the motels for the police to deal with. And this could explain the inaction of the Chicago police regarding the collective's activities. But disaster struck later.
1972, when Jane's facilities were raided by the police. Two Catholic women had went to the police because their sister-in-law was planning on having an abortion. The police followed the sister-in-law to the first location, then to the next, and as one of the Jane Collective members were leaving the building to retrieve the next patient, she saw two policemen and all of the color drained from her face. One of them smiled and ominously said, Hi, Jane. He forced her to show them where the abortions were taking. And as she walked back, she shouted that the police were here and that no one had to answer a single question. In the back room where the abortion was taking place, the women were hurriedly throwing out all of their medical instruments out of their multiple-story apartment building. Thankfully, they made sure that no one was on the street below when they threw their materials. Three patients waiting for abortions were taken to the hospital. Seven Jane members were arrested, among them a high school English teacher, several housewives with young children, and a student who was about to adopt a baby. In the police van, one removed from her purse a stack of 3 by 5 cards with contact information for all women who had called for help. They ripped off the corners of the patients' names and addresses and swallowed them. Each woman of each of the seven women were faced with a maximum of 110 years in prison. And they were dubbed the abortion seven. The abortion seven's lawyer stalled the trial, knowing that the decision on Roe v. Wade was imminent and could minimize, if not erase, the charges against the women. And while they were out on bail, the Supreme Court decided on Roe v. Wade, which disallowed many state restrictions on abortion. Jane members gathered to celebrate, but while the women were relieved, the celebration was subdued. The decision of Roe v. Wade was written emphatically in terms of physician rights and not women's rights, and revalidated the medical profession's control of women's reproductive health. What had women really won? The right to more callous treatment by medical professionals? They had finally achieved what they set out to do, women helping women, and now men would be in charge again. All right, phew. That is all I have for the Jane Collective for today. Next up, we have an interview with amazing Amelia Benau. But first, I'm going to have some promos and commercials play just as a palate cleanser or as a commercialized palate cleanser. Please stay tuned for the interview afterwards. And all right, welcome back, folks. You're back on air with Anarchy on Air. My name is Jeannie, and this is 88.1 WESU-FM Middletown, all the way to the left of your dial. And now we have an interview with Amelia Benau, who is the founder of Hashtag Shout Your Abortion, and the organization, and a co-editor of the book, Shout Your Abortion. If you would like a copy of the book, please head towards PM Press to order your own copy there. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm happy to talk to you. Yeah. Okay. So I have a couple of questions for you. Well, a few, but for every, um, with everything that has come out from us, is this what you have hoped for, for, from the shout your abortion, um, hashtag? Um, I mean, I think, yeah, I think, um, I hope that it like continues to evolve and like take more forms Mm -hmm. and it, as it has, you know, like this book is brand new. We are we we are like a full fully legit organization at this point and we have all sorts of different programs and um you know ways that we're engaging like with people and helping them tell their stories or giving them a platform with which to do so all over the country and so um it's hard to yeah i mean like i feel i feel super happy about the um about what it has become and also like know that it it kind of will never stop 
you know, mm-hmm. like, because it is more of just sort of like, I mean, it's more of, it's not like a, a hashtag or a, it's like, um, you know, it's a paradigm shift mm-hmm. to use like a sort of corny phrase, but it's mm-hmm. like, once that starts happening, like it's, you're off to the races, you know? <laughs> yeah, of course. And so, okay, so tell me, what has um, your organization done since then? So basically, we um, we create um, places in art and media and real-life events all over the country for people to talk about abortion on their own terms. And mm-hmm. um, the it's it's sort of difficult to even, like, describe the range of projects because um, it's just vast it's like everything from um well so first of all one really tangible thing is our website is a place where you can go add your abortion story in like text or video and there are hundreds of stories on the site at this point it's used almost every day um and then the book also being you know obviously like a a really tangible um thing but but like a lot of other stuff that we have done is like a lot more amorphous Um, so we, we support, we're like explicitly decentralized. Um, Mm. and so we like partner with and work to support, um, artists and activists and people who want to talk about their abortion experiences, like in their own communities. So people will hit us up and be like, I want to, um, I want to have a comedy show where all of the, um, all of the comics are telling their abortion stories or like we want to make a zine and um, send it to abortion clinics or also a, a cool thing about the book is um, the book is currently at, at the end of this month, I think it will be in like 160 different abortion clinics in their waiting and recovery rooms. Wow. Um, I know. Isn't that so awesome? That is incredible. So- yeah. Because, like, you have yeah. a range of stories on yours, too, that they're not just all one narrative. And I know you address that in your introduction, that you didn't want mm-hmm. one emotion. And so having, like, 44 stories right. or 45 stories yeah. that are just, that run the gamut, I think is amazing. And, like, there still could have just been so many more, you know? Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a really intimidating um, task to even think about like making a book of abortion stories because it is like a implicitly finite Mm -hmm. you know collection or whatever and I mean still like I I hear abortion people like tell me in person or um you know in my dms or contact me in some way to tell me about their abortions like almost every day and I I still like hear stories that are unlike any story that I've heard before um all the time you know Mm -hmm. either in in like the specific emotional experience um or like you know the the circumstances like it's just such a vast human experience that we've really and when you when when society has like not really ever talked about it um and we are so like used to really really narrow like narratives Mm -hmm. um it all is just like whoa there's it's just so interesting you know like I feel like we've just never collectively like wrapped our mind around this incredibly common human experience and um the best way to do so is to just start listening to these stories you know and and understand that they are truly like infinite yeah I mean, there are as many stories as there are people who have had them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That is, yeah. Um, and, like, I remember when I had my abortion, you know, like, uh, which obviously was, like, this super positive experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I just, I, I didn't, like, um, I didn't feel like, a thing people say to me often is, like, I didn't feel bad, but I felt sort of bad that I didn't feel bad mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, yeah I, I didn't even feel that mm-hmm. um like I just felt like stoked but I also was really aware that um like I had never heard anyone speak about about their abortion experience in as positive a way as I was like feeling about mine and I just it made me wonder if like I was sort of like strange emotionally or, or you know like 
Mm-hmm. And now, in retrospect, like I've heard so many people that express, um, you know, anything re- ranging from like relief to joy to just, you know, it feeling like this incredible like validation of their autonomy. And, and now I know that like, it's not that I was strange or that, that like that, that's a really common experience. Actually. I just like, didn't, Mm -hmm. I just never heard it before. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, after being an abortion doula, it's just Mm -hmm. every type of experience from the people who are super, super happy because they already have like a kid at home or two. And they're like, I am not doing it again, and I am so happy right. that this exists. To the people who are like, yeah. I also have a kid at home, but I can't do this again, and I, it hurt yeah. my heart. And so, yeah, yeah, like, everyone. Yeah, that's, yeah. I would love to be an abortion doula. Yeah. I, 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 I'll get to it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> you still have time. You're a therapist now? Yeah? Uh, no, I'm not. Actually, SYA is my full-time job. So um, we, we are entering, like, our or we're in our, I guess, fourth year as a, um, as a, a full-on or organization. Um, we're up to four full-time staff. Um, yeah. And yeah, so it gets to be my job for now, which is really incredible. That is... And I may, I yeah. may go back to be, I may go back and f- find my way to, you know, some kind of therapy job at some point. But right now it kind of feels, it feels like SYA is like group therapy for like, the world yeah for the world for a lot of people like a lot of people they won't be able to seek out um therapy for many reasons and like this kind of like crowdsource of like everyone telling their stories I think is important right totally and that's like really important to me is that it's not it's not like gatekept in the same Mm. way that you know therapy is Mm -hmm. and that's also what's so beautiful to me about um doula work is Mm -hmm is like how, I mean, I, I don't know if this is like all, the, the, the doula collectives that I know of do, mm-hmm. um, they're like almost all volunteer. Yeah. And like specifically, you know, it's just like not a commodified like relationship, mm-hmm. which is so, is that like the way most collectives are? Um, yes, for the most part, um, I would say. And then some are um, not volunteered, but they are paid, but they're not paid by, um, like right, the patient right. or the client. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's so awesome. It's just so special that you get to like give people that experience and that it's not something, I don't know. It's just like, we're also used to just like paying for our mm-hmm. health or yeah. our, you know, mental, emotional health, all of that and stuff and stuff like therapy being like something that's very much, mm-hmm. um, for elites or whatever yeah or like Mm -hmm. getting a massage even you know it's like we think of these things as being like super fancy and -hmm. they are you know they're prohibitively expensive but um why it's just so sad to me that that should that stuff should be like for rich people only especially something like an amazing birth experience or Mm -hmm. abortion experience you know yeah, just, like, tenderness is so highly yeah, valued. Yeah, And even, like, yeah. if we think about, like, nannies versus, like, babysitters or whatever. Totally. And so even in that sense, I completely agree. Um, okay, so question. What have you discovered since, um, since the rise of all of this, since your journey throughout this organization and this book and, like, getting all these DMs still? I don't know. I think that, and I sort of allude to this in the intro about how, like, this idea that, like, when we talk about our abortions, we're not just talking about having an abortion. As these stories in the book show, it's like people are talking about um, their whole lives in super vulnerable ways Mm -hmm. um, because our abortions are so central and um, so tied into, like, our relationships and like our, whether or not our needs are being met. And, um, you know, like, I guess a thing that, a thing that never fails to astound me is just how much like this society represses everything. Mm -hmm. And like, we're just, we're like not supposed to talk about any of any of the stuff that happens to us. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so, and, and, and the corollary of that being like, I, I have seen 
so many times like someone and I think that this is another thing too that the book shows and that some people in the book like explicitly identify as like once you start processing one thing it can like lead to um like a whole different level of of not just self-awareness and not just like processing your own experiences for yourself but like living your life in a way that is like more open with the people around you and like helping give them tools to like love and support you better Mm. Um, by telling them something like, but you know, and and then that can start with like talking about your abortion. But then in order Mm -hmm. to talk about your abortion, you're talking about like your fucked up relationship and your Mm. struggles with mental health and like, Mm -hmm. you know, poverty. And, and, and when you start to like, really just share those parts of yourself with other people like I think you will experience more like you'll just be more supported because people will know what's actually going on with you you know mm-hmm. yeah I completely agree and um so how did you so I have like I have a specific question about the book but how did you select the 45 was it or did you have like a whole number and then you had to really narrow it down or was it um so i mean we didn't have um it wasn't like we were starting from a concrete number we like knew that yeah. the book was going to be a certain number of pages but also the the other sections were like sort of could have been relatively scalable to accommodate like more or less stories um i mean we knew that we wanted to um to have stories from just as many different kinds of people as possible and as many different kinds of abortion stories. And um, the easiest place to start um, for us felt like geographical diversity because Mm -hmm. obviously a person's um, level of access and, you know, for that matter, like the cultural context in which they're like having this abortion, Mm -hmm. um, I think is sort of the first layer of like what defines their experience. Yeah. Um, you know, like for me, I just knew that I was going to be able to go six blocks away and have this mm-hmm. abortion at this place that I'd been cared for like super well for many years. I knew that I could pay for it. I knew that, um, you know, I wasn't worried about anti-choice protesters or, or, or like someone seeing me in the clinic. I, I knew that like the people around me would be as supportive as I called on them to be because I Mm -hmm. knew that like everyone close to me was pro-choice. So, um, you know, I never, like when I found out I was pregnant, I just like, there was no part of me that was like scared or even really upset. It was just like, Mm -hmm. this is a situation that I can handle. And like, obviously it's not ideal to have an unplanned pregnancy and unwanted pregnancy, but I, I'm going to get through it and I know exactly how to do that. And I know I'm going to be okay. Um, and you know, my situation is just so, was just so anomalous in that way. Like so many people's stories. Um, the very first thing is, is how am I going to pay for this is where do I even go? Mm. Um, who can I possibly tell, you know? And, and so, So like my ability to really define my own experience and, and have a positive experience also, like, I think is very much a product of, of my privilege just on every level as like, you know, a white cis woman, um, middle-class living in like the most, one of the most like affluent and liberal parts of the country, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and with the best abortion laws. Okay, good. Um, but so, so we um have this amazing photographer who does freelance work for us sometimes named elizabeth rudge and we Mm -hmm. sent elizabeth to nine different states to take these photos um of people and to just meet them in like their homes their works Mm -hmm. like the parks where they hang out and and take these portraits of them um and so like starting like i would say like probably a third to half of the stories in the book were like folks who had been aware of, um, who had like told their story through Sway in some way or who we'd done work with or who like hit me up 
to tell me their story and then like something that felt like a really important like perspective um to include and so so sort of from those two pieces like the just um you know the ones that were already folks that i knew um and then like the geographical diversity piece then we just sort of like expanded outward from there and it was like you know it's like really important to have um gender non-conforming folks it's mm-hmm. really important it was really important to have folks that had had multiple abortions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it was really important to have folks that had abortions because of fetal abnormalities and folks that yeah. just were sad about their abortions mm-hmm. and folks that were really happy about their abortions um so really it just kind of came down to trying to um like represent as many people as possible and also knowing that like it's still it's still just a slice of something that is truly infinite like you, and and like you said that there are like as many different kinds of abortions as there are people that have them yeah. um and 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 you know it was like i said it was like scary to even try and, and you know like that free form sort of like the very open ended aspect of sway and the fact mm. that like there are people all over the country like doing projects that are inspired by SYA who are not people that I know or have ever spoken to. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Like it to me is the opposite of like gatekeeping and it's the way to make things as, as accessible and just like truly um, representative of, um, you know, it's like really a cultural movement. It's not like a, a, a campaign or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would never have it any other way. And like the idea of even curating like a even just trying to make this book felt like super daunting to me for that reason because it's like okay we're trying to actually like make a snapshot of this movement and like I was terrified of like leaving people out you know Mm -hmm. um but at the same time like I started to think about we got approached by the publisher and I started to think about the possibility of like what would happen if we made a book that was in like hundreds of waiting rooms of abortion clinics. Um, and like, because books are like things that you can just sort of like discover on accident, you know, Mm -hmm. which I think is super important. Um, and yeah, that was kind of what made me be like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. (laughs) Like, and just do our best. And I'm really glad that we did. Um, I feel super proud of it and of like, I feel proud of us. Like I feel so proud of like everyone in there and it's been like a really Mm -hmm. huge experience for everyone in there. Um, You know, like I would say there are probably 10 stories in there or 15 stories in there from people who live in States where abortion will be immediately criminalized if Roe versus Wade is overturned. And, um, they like chose to, they, they knew that that was a possibility. Although Justice Kennedy retired like two days after we like submitted the final draft of the book, which was really cool. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but you know, it's like so inspiring to me that folks in places like Texas and Tennessee and Mississippi, like knew that that was the deal and just were like, nope, I'm doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like here I am here's my life. It's just so, it's really like, I believe it changes the universe. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And um, this is something that I will talk about a little bit later in the Jane Collective piece that I'm writing about. But like the fact that people who aren't in places where they can get abortions Mm -hmm. doesn't stop them from getting abortions. And so I was reading, I mean, and so luckily none, I think every, I think every state has at least one abortion center right now, but like incredibly far. And so, um, and so like to read some of your stories from, I was like, just, I was just on this, um, the one girl from Mississippi and I was like reading her story and I was like, she like for her to have been able at I don't even know how old she was but um to be able to get an abortion like that is something big and I hope this doesn't end but like considering like Mm -hmm. our current politics like I'm not I'm not sure how like um high my hopes are anymore and so yeah 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 not a question but (laughs) no (laughs) just a thing yeah I feel you and it's yeah it's it's not looking good. And I think that like one, um, one thing that I try to remember and just like 
trying to have perspective mm-hmm. on on what's happening legislatively instead of just sort of panicking and being like, ah, this is the end, is that like Roe versus Wade has not provided meaningful access to abortion for many, many, many millions of Americans mm-hmm. um, like ever because of the Hyde Amendment. Really quickly, the Hyde Amendment is basically since 1976, the Hyde Amendment has blocked federal Medicaid funding for abortion services. Since 1994, there have been three extremely narrow exceptions. When the continuing the pregnancy will endanger the woman's life or when the pregnancy results from rape or incest. This means Medicaid cannot cover abortion even when a woman's health is at risk and her doctor recommends getting an abortion. When insurance cover provides for all pregnancy-related health care except for abortion, it interferes with the private health decisions that are best left to the woman, her doctor, and her family. The Hyde Amendment is dangerous and unfair policy that lets politicians interfere in a woman's personal health care decisions. Um, which, you know, came along just a couple of years after Roe and immediately made it so that access was this, like, class privilege. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So, like, abortion access has always been um, relegated to to people of means. And um, so maybe what's happening, like, and I, I would never say that, like, it would be a good thing if Roe was o- overturned. But I do think that, like, we're in a moment where we know that like the system has failed and like, um, and it already has, you know, like mm-hmm. whether or not Roe is overturned, um, the system has failed. Like if there are yep. seven states with one abortion clinic and if there are 90% of counties with none, and if people can't use Medicaid to pay for their abortions, like the system has already failed. And so we have to do better and we have to start talking about, um, how to like truly make sure that people have access to like, you know, to like that, that anyone can make that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and in order to do that, like, you know, we got to start talking about self-managed abortion and abortion that's occurring outside of, of, um, federal regulation and medical clinics because, you know, the healthcare system and it's like and capitalism is and Mm -hmm. like everyone's people can't afford to go get their teeth fixed and they can't afford to go get abortions and it's the same problem you know and Mm -hmm. and we do have the power to like um take i think a lot more measures to like expand access regardless of legality than we are now I hope you enjoyed my interview with Amelia Banau. I know I had an amazing time speaking with her. Um, she does have a few resources that are listed at the back of her book, and I will list them here now. There is the All Options Pregnancy Resource Cent- Center. The hotline is 888-493-0092, and the website is all options o-p-t-i-o-n-s dot org there's also the abortion care network at abortioncarenetwork.org the national abortion federation which is prochoice.org or 1-800-772-9100 there is also the national network of abortion funds which i just mentioned and that is at abortionfunds.org. Obviously, we have the major Planned Parenthood, which is at plannedparenthood.org, or call 1-800-230-PLAN, which is 7526, to find a Planned Parenthood center. There's also the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, that is WPATH.org. There is the Self-Managed Abortion, Safe and Supported, which is S-A-S-S, and their website is abortionpillinfo.org, or you can email that at info at womenhelp.org. Next, there is Plan C at plancpills.org. 
They have information and have ordered abortion pills from 14 websites without a prescription and tested them in a lab, um, tested all the pills in a lab. And the test results are listed on a report card with rates with reliability of the medication purchased on various websites, including information about pricing, shipping, times, active amounts of ingredients and of the drugs received. And because the online pharmacy services are unregulated, there is no way to access the authenticity or quality of the products these websites currently provide. But at the time of this writing, there's no reason to suspect the quality of the pills um, from the sites reviewed on the Plan C, on the Plan C page. Legal support. Even though abortion is legal in the United States, abortion pills are only legally available through abortion care providers. People who have medication medication abortions with pills ordered online through non-clinical channels may face unwarranted risk of arrest. The following organizations can provide support to people currently facing legal trouble surrounding a pregnancy or information for those who want to know how to protect themselves from being penalized by the government in pregnancy-related situations. National Advocates for Pregnant Women, which is advocatesforpregnantwomen.org, or the phone number is 1-212-255-9252, or the CLE Legal Team, which is now changed to If, When, How, but you're still able to reach them at 844-868-2812, or info at SIA. L-E-G-A-L-T-E-A-M dot org. Or you can just find them on their old website, which is SIA, S-I-A, legalteam dot org. A woman who wishes to end a pregnancy up to 10 weeks when most abortions happen can get pills from a doctor, a combination of mifepristone and misuprasol, and miscarry at home. If she cannot arrange or afford an appointment with a doctor, there is another way, although it is risky and illegal. The medications can be ordered online and taken with instructions available from groups like the International Women's Health Coalition, but drugs aren't always from safe sources, and several women have been prosecuted for doing this. Again, if you want a copy or... Um, to see more of Amelia's work with hashtag ShoutYourAbortion, please go to ShoutYourAbortion.com and you will find everything you need there. All right, folks, that's the end of our show for today. Thank you so, so much for listening. This has not been the lightest show, so I really appreciate you sticking it out. I hope we all have a wonderful week ahead of us and a wonderful rest of April 2019. Please take care of yourself in whatever manner that might be, communally, personally, publicly, and any other Lee that I am forgetting, except unless if you need consent from another Lee, then ask that consent of that Lee, then you should be okay. But until then, this has been Anarchy on Air. I'm one of your hosts, Jeannie, and this is 88.1 WESU Middletown, all the way to the left of your dial, and see you in about two-ish weeks.